U.S. this summer, I was expecting to replace khakis I just had to throw out because I got bleach on them. So what, am I not going to be able to get is that, them? Is that what we're calling it now? Bleach? That was bleach. Yeah. It was bleach. Different kind of bleach. They told me don't use bleach. Be careful. Grandpa's old cough medicine is what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast with two guys just shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll update you on cow methane, talk about the new global minimum tax, and later we'll talk with Simon Ebenet about the direction of trade and whether protectionism really is making a comeback. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. All right, folks, welcome to episode 21. 21 is also the atomic number for scandium. It's a rare earth element found only in China, Ukraine, and Russia, three countries I've never been to. As I understand, it's also the age you first kissed a girl, which is a big, uh, that's, big monument. That's uh, debatable. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We'll start off this episode by bringing you our listener feedback, as usual. Rob, why don't you start us off since you're so Absolutely. We have a listener who life. wrote in uh, the following, didn't write it, maybe just told me. Please don't use the phrase without further ado or the words hashtag or digress in any further podcasts. Thank you. This is what happens. I open up to you and you jab. I open up emotionally, you jab. Or you have other people do the jabbing. We have to be open. We have to be authentic. And we have to accept criticism. And these phrases apparently are boring. However, there's something I do want to get off my chest. We are no longer using the word dad joke. This is no longer going to be used. They're just jokes. We're not judgy. They're good. They're fun. They're hilarious. Another listener, another avid listener from Tennessee, yes, really, said he thoroughly enjoyed our recent crossover episodes with the trade guys, but was a bit concerned about Bill's strong dislike of kebabs. In the D.C. area, he strongly recommends Kebab Palace in Arlington. Although it's a bit far from Bethesda, it is convenient to Washington National Airport and is often his first stop when arriving in D.C. It's also been there for decades. It's open 24-7 and the kebabs are never overcooked or dry. What more do you want? You had me at Kebab Palace. Also, as he puts it, Memphis BBQ is clearly the best. Hashtag Kansas City ribs. Okay. I think I see a road trip ahead. Also, in what we're going to be calling the candle in the wind segment, we need to add another celebrity communication attempt to the they did not last as long as trade-splaining That's list. an important list. And a it's, big list. it's becoming a long list, folks. Now add former President Donald J. Trump's blog, yeah. rest in peace, to that list. This is in addition, you'll remember, to Mike Pence's podcast. Went nowhere. Went nowhere. Another one bites the dust. What what happened to Trump's blog? I'm very concerned. All I know is from what I've read in the news, and that's that it, it was not huge with a Y. Have you ever read it? Did, no. Neither have I. No. Who wants to read? Has anybody ever read it? It, it, it? It's tweet or GTFO. I heard the Oscars were not cool. That was one of the big blog. Was it? it I read about it in the New York Times. <laughs> That's that's how far I am from his actual blog as I read about it in the New York Times. I'm ambivalent. I don't really care either way. All I know is it's less competition Did for Did you us. follow him on Twitter? No. Well then, let's just jump right into this week's news roundup, What Went Wrong This Week segment. Starting us off is everybody's favorite. Corporate taxation has entered the digital era. So the group of seven advanced economies agreed to the outline of a global deal on taxation that could hand governments greater rights to levy U.S. tech giants and set a floor for corporate rates around the world, something we've been 
talking intermittently about. The overall aim is to stop multinational firms from shifting profits between jurisdictions to these lower tax bills. Looking at you, Ireland. Uh, make them pay more in countries where they operate and adapt the system to cope with trade and intangibles like data and information. It's also part of a wider push from the U.S. and others to accelerate global collaboration on, on other issues. So multilateralism is not dead. Yeah, I think it's something that's been on our mind for a long time. How do you do something that has nothing to do with your business, suddenly end up in Ireland, pay half taxes, or wherever, Switzerland or Jersey or the US of A is one of the places people do it the most. So it's been there, but countries have to get together and agree on it. So they, through the OECD, they started to agree on reduced corporate tax rates. So in Switzerland, this was a big deal. We had to vote on it. They voted yes and so on. It's, it's an example of how the U.S. is trying to deal with flanking issues. We, you brought this up before, already about flanking issues. Trade is not the problem, but some of the other issues are the problem. Mm. So can we collaborate at a level to, to address some of these things? Now, of course, it's not a guarantee. So what are some of the issues? So, well, there's a couple. So essentially, again, people need to remember that this is uh, an agreement between only seven countries, the most advanced economies in the world, but it's not the entire world that has signed up to this. So poorer countries also have their own issues they'd like to see reflected in this deal. So as ever, the devil will be in the details in terms of what the final deal looks like. And it's also important to point out that there was a bit of posturing going on in the run-up to this to this agreement. So this is a way for the U.S. to circumvent countries like France, who were hoping to place a digital tax on the biggest tech companies in the world, all of which happen to be American. As part of this, tech companies will be taxed, but this will also include companies like uh, LVMH. And on top of that, in terms of the flanking policy point you had mentioned, it's also interesting because it's been described as a race to the bottom. And if we do get a global minimum tax, it'll force countries to compete on other more fair terms. So education, vocational training, things like that, rather than just who can provide the lowest tax rates. So my champagne is going to be more expensive, what you're telling uh, me. If you drank champagne, yes. Exactly. <laughs> and on top of that, I should also mention that they still also need to decide what the threshold will be for companies to count as being taxed at this 15% rate. So there's, there's a lot of details to be discussed, but I, I'm pleasantly surprised the fact that seven countries agreed to this in an, in an era where there have been lots of obituaries written about multilateralism and, and such. I agree. It's good to see the U.S. also taking its role again. Maybe it'll never be the same, but taking its role again in leading things. And they're trying this in multiple areas. And one of the other areas I think is interesting is combating corruption. So the U.S. was way ahead the the anti-corruption push with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So a long time ago, U.S. companies were, were made by law in the U.S. to stop paying off other companies. Of course, there's a lot of ways to get around it. But I would love to see them push on that and to see a G7 and a G20 and a G... One million. Julian. Yeah, approach on that because it's something that really undermines the you know, pe people's belief in globalization. I think on a basic level of when you're talking about fairness, inherently most people won't say that it is fair to have a company like Apple pulling off a no. Irish-Dutch sandwich as they call it in the accounting world. They do call it that. I'm not making it. Yeah, something like that. It's a inverse Dutch Irish sandwich. I don't know. It's uh, it's a Bono thing. I don't know. So it's inherently not fair that uh, Apple, which brands itself an American or, or made in California, they put on, on the back of all their products to be taxed at a different rate from, from other companies. Yeah. And I think it was interesting that Facebook 
obviously felt like they needed to get out ahead of this and say that they were in favor of it. So they did. They immediately said, we are into it. The cynic in me would say that they also didn't want to be taxed at the French Gérard Depardieu uh, levels. I think the main thing for corporates we know is not to be taxed at 50 different ways. So give me something consistent, something predictable, and I can plan for it. So 50 ways to kill your lover. There's 50 ways to tax a multinational. There's a reference to that other thing. It's a Paul Simon. Anyway, (laughs) speaking of, this is going to be titled our Where's the Beef sub-segment. Yes. Australia is apparently finding alternative markets to China. Sure. So you and I talked about U.S.-China tariffs causing trade diversion. So this is essentially when the free market would go one way and there's a trade agreement which pushes it in a different direction. I need to cut you off. We trademark trade whack-a-mole, by the way, for any other podcast out there. It's it's actually, we're we're actually next door to uh, WIPO. So I have somebody I know there, so we've actually trademarked it. So back off. You owe us uh, 15 cents every time you use it. Okay. If there are any lawyers listening, we, we haven't actually done it. So Trade Whack-A-Mole season two with Australia and China. <laughs> so this is this time it's Australia, China. So China had set a series of restrictions, anti-dumping, anti-subsidy. They used almost every page in the book. They, they're going to say they were within their rights to do stuff. It's anti-dumping, which is, of course, allowed under WTO rules and so on. So that's that remains to be seen. But in any case, the, the Chinese used many different uh, ways to block uh, Australian imports. They were effective. This is a big export market for Australia, and the, these exports could v- be up to a value of $25 billion or more. That's what it was before before all this happened. And at that time, Australia actually had a trade surplus with China, which mm. is a kind of unknown thing for developed countries. So basically at that time, and you and I talked about it probably at the beginning of the year, we thought, okay, this could be terrible for Australia. In fact, what we see is Australia has found other markets for some key exports. So iron ore, coal, timber, seafood have gone to other markets. In particular, for instance, coal has gone to India. I mean, you can't sell coal to Denmark right now. Or maybe Norway. <laughs> but they did find the Indians to take over. And what they found is it hasn't been quite as as difficult as expected. But again, it's trade diversion. So this is not the kind of thing we want to see in the this rules-based system. We want it to be predictable, efficient, and so on. But the Australians have found other markets. They've also decided to initiate a bunch of things, open free trade agreements with the U.S., free trade agreement with the U.K. And they're also, of course, looking at dispute resolution in the WTO. A couple of the as you indicate with beef, a couple uh, products that are not doing that well, wine, because they were getting a very nice premium in Chinese markets, and beef. And the two do go together nicely. So where's the beef? We don't know yet. We don't, we don't know. It's it's uh, it, it's finding a market, I'm sure, but it's, not it's quite. It's going the to the UK. Market. They love their beef as soon as that trade deal signed. So I think it's I think it's kind of economics 101, watching trade diversion. Last week, we talked about also where where the U.S. was sourcing items that had been diverted from China because mm. of tariffs. So let's, let's keep watching. And I think it's important always for us to see the data on these things. So is there an effect? Yes. Very clear. Data is overrated. Anecdotes are much better. And they make for much easier I um, don't, onliners. I don't like this kind of trade. Yeah. It's important. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, speaking of China, they're also looking at unorthodox ways to control inflation. Yeah, we talked about inflation last week. Could this be, Or you mean, sorry, upward inflationary upward pressure, pressure on prices. <laughs> upward inflationary pressures. We talked about the prospect of inflation last week. We haven't seen it for a while. Could it actually be happening? And we even, you and I even talked about Nikkei Asia having reported on inflation in China. So I think somebody was listening. Premier Xi made a speech saying this is an issue. And You're welcome. Thank, exactly. You're welcome, China. So from Bloomberg, they said that they, 
they basically went through what happened in the Chinese bureaucracy after this. Apparently, there's a Department of Price, almost literally. I, mean, I don't know what it is okay. in Chinese. I think you just made that up. But <laughs> it's, this is some, I'm not making this up. So they started calling uh, industry officials. They started calling executives. They started calling all sorts of folks. And they're bringing them in for meetings, difficult meetings, apparently. And they were looking for solutions so, to keep commodity prices down. In particular, they wanted folks to sell their surpluses. So don't hold on to it for higher prices. Don't bet on higher prices later. So don't do the usual thing commodities markets do. And even though companies were telling them this is the way the market works, they were putting a lot of pressure. And as we know, we saw with Jack Ma and so on, even the biggest companies in China can be brought under uh, this kind of pressure and can be can be influenced. Mm. So it did have an effect in the short term. And so pr- commodity prices did go down. But most analysts think it's temporary. Right? The, the, you, you can't just change market dynamics by talking a lot. Really? Is, <laughs> Where have the last four years gone? <laughs> look at look at Elon Musk. Look at Elon Musk. So Goldman and others are saying bet against this. China can't control commodity markets, and apparently they have fewer levers than they ever have. Mm. But I don't know which. So so this is their unorthodox way to try to talk down commodity prices rather than to see how the market dynamics work. I think unorthodox is a is a nice way of putting it. Euphemism. It's, yeah, it's probably unheard of. I don't know of any other market economies that have, or many other market economies that have done this in the in the last five to ten years. So it'll. I mean, it'll be interesting to to watch how this plays out. I have a feeling that I would agree with Goldman Sachs. So that's where my bets are going. If they're listening. Yeah. <laughs> That about does it for our news roundup. We'll have Simon Evnett on in a moment to talk about all things global trade and trade restriction. Simon Evnett is professor of international trade and economic development at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. My old job. <laughs> he founded the Global Trade Alert, the independent commercial policy monitoring initiative. Since the pandemic began, the Global Trade Alert team is actively monitoring trade and investment policies affecting supply chains and essential goods, something we all should worry about. Simon's thought leadership on trade policy can be accessed there at www.globaltradealert.org. So, Simon, thanks for being with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the field of trade? What's the journey been like? And in particular, how have events over the past two years shaped your views on trade, if at all? I got into international trade at graduate school in the United States. I decided I wanted to work in the area of international economics. And I looked around and asked myself, what were the most interesting trends that I could see, which I thought needed a greater explanation. And as a result, I ended up looking into in some depth into the US anti-dumping law and how it gets executed. And so I went from finishing off my PhD at Yale down to the Brookings Institution and uh, then began working on trade policy in Washington, D.C., which I think is still the most vibrant place to follow trade policy. And uh, I spent in total 11 years in the United States before returning to Europe in 2002. And I continued my interest in uh, trade policy. But it's been very much trade policy at the inter- or the intersection of economics, business, and public policy, not just any one of those three things, all three of them together. Uh, COVID has been a a very interesting era to study trade policy, because for me, the most shocking thing is it's revealed how little the trade policymaking community actually knew about how business was organized in the 21st century, especially in the form of uh, cross-border supply chains. The other really um, surprising finding in, in the COVID era was just how much of trade policy is in effect controlled by health policy officials. And so many of them take a 
particular view on on the necessities at the time. And to be frank, damn the consequences for the trading system. And I think what we saw a lot of last year were a lot of export curbs put in place based on, on allegedly health grounds with very little thought given to the disruption to supply chains which followed. And so that was a very good reminder that the trade policy world is not the only world that deals with trade policy. There are many other policymakers who have a bearing on what goes on across borders, and we need to take account of them, those of us who are in the trade policy area. So, Simon, your empirical work in tracking trade policy uh, changes over the past 12 years seems to indicate a shift away from open trade. That was when I went to graduate school, that was the thing. And and away from liberalizing reforms, uh, and particularly the global trade alert that, that you're leading, let's say it, it measures tens of thousands of such changes. Can you describe to us what those changes are, what they look like? And am I getting the trend right? And do you think it'll continue? Are we moving away from what we thought was open trade? In the Global Trade Alert Initiative, where we've documented over 31,000 policy interventions that affect trade, around two-thirds of them are in the wrong direction. That is, they seek to distort trade. The policy interventions seek to distort trade. Those trade distortions have taken many forms. And I think there's a really important distinction between the type of high-profile salient trade distortions like the tariffs the Americans put on Chinese goods and the retaliation that took place during the Trump era. And what I think is actually even more important, and that is the very below-the-radar screen interventions which effectively distort markets. And here, many of them are subsidy-related, especially subsidies to particular firms. We used to just think the subsidies was an agricultural trade policy problem, and we thought that we had beaten the subsidies in manufacturing and ruled them out in the Uruguay Round Accords. Our evidence suggests that subsidies have crept back into manufacturing. And in in addition to the ones you're seeing in agriculture, we see over time a big increase in the share of world trade covered by subsidies. Our estimate is about 30% of world trade faces competition where there's some locally subsidized firm. And if you turn to export incentives, which governments frequently give often through the tax system, they cover around two thirds of world trade. So we live in an era more subsidization, more trade distortions than trade reforms. And a lot of it is very under the radar screen. Okay, but does that matter? Because manufacturing is good. We want more of it. Uh, subsidies can be used to support economic objectives. We, we think it's more important now to, to do computer chips than potato chips. So is it just in Geneva where we worry about such things and, and in academic circles? Or is this a bad thing? Is this really the wrong direction? It is a bad thing. And if you go beyond trade policy circles, you have people's lives materially affected by things like subsidies. For a long time, we've understood that African farmers, their competitive prospects in European markets were thought to be undermined by subsidies. That argument has been very well accepted. But uh, I think we need to think about such arguments in the context of African manufacturers of goods as well. Or indeed, if you're based in Switzerland, a Swiss manufacturer, which cannot tap into subsidies from Bern, has to compete against German and French and Italian manufacturers in the European markets, where there are such subsidies too. Or you may have an exporter from, say, Bangladesh shipping T-shirts and the like that has to compete in a third market against Chinese firms which have received VAT rebates on their exports. And that, of course, undercuts the ability of the Bangladeshi firm to lower their prices. So I think real real material living standards are affected by these subsidies. And of course, the other party that loses from the payment of all these subsidies are the taxpayers who have to fund them. And that's me and you. And we're assuming we're subsidizing the wrong things. I guess in some economic model, one could come up with a scenario where a subsidy fills a, a public good problem or fills a, an economic efficiency, uh, efficiency problem. So it, it, it has a good effect rather than a bad effect. But you're saying on balance, it's not a close call. 
Well, I think the scale and the pervasiveness of the subsidies that we've found makes me a little bit cautious about accepting without qualification arguments which say that there's a market failure which is being fixed by subsidies. I'm not close to that as a theoretical argument, but I actually want to see the evidence first before I accept it. So so it seems like what you're saying, there is an economic argument to make for not just on an empirical basis, but saying that an average Swiss Kenyan or an American small business would see a difference. One thing we've also been hearing about lately, and the question we'd like to put to you is we've been hearing a lot about vaccine restrictions these past few months, specifically with TRIPS waivers most recently in the news. So is this as big an issue as it's been made out? Do countries like India or South Africa have a point or is it a continuation of, as some have said, of already long held positions of these countries vis-a-vis IP? Is there an economic argument, basically? Right. There are several facets to this. Let me start by saying I think anyone who wants to raise the issue of vaccine equity and access to vaccines is making a good point because it's the the nature of the production of vaccines is it's highly concentrated in a small number of countries. And that's, there are good commercial reasons why that has been the case in the past. And of course, if uh, that production is going to be shared to the rest of the world and the rest of the world does need to be inoculated in order for us to beat COVID-19, then immediately it implicates the trading system. So there's clearly a trade policy issue here. I think the second point to make is the goal, or the objective must surely be to ramp up production as quickly as possible. We need about 11 billion doses of COVID-19 if we're going to have global herd immunity. And so the question then becomes, what can we do in terms of public policy to support the existing expansion of vaccines, vaccine production? Because the private sector has got very big plans already in the works. And so now, do we need to waive intellectual property rights in order to facilitate that production ramp up? That's not clear to me at all. I would say that you have to compare two timetables. The timetable that the private sector has for ramping up production for the rest of this year, which should get us to where we need to be in December, versus the diplomatic timetable necessary to negotiate a TRIPS waiver, and then the six to nine months later, which are going to be needed to build a safe and efficient production facility. And so, I mean, I I fear that imagine if we, even if we agreed a TRIPS waiver tomorrow, that the production that might result from it would not come on board until quarter one or quarter two of next year. And by then, if the supply chains for vaccine ingredients and the like have not gummed up, we will have the vaccines we need for the first round of inoculation. So I think it's it's not a matter of sort of high principle here. It's just actually really a matter of timing and practicality. It seems it seems that it's also a, it's imbued with 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 a political element, which you sometimes often forget when we're talking about trade or economic decisions. Another one that we've been talking a lot about, which obviously has political uh, connotations, is is Brexit. We're not going to talk about that, but Switzerland recently held a referendum on a free trade agreement with Indonesia, which was not submitted to voters in other EFTA countries. So I guess the question, if we're building on that, is do we, do you think, in your opinion, that we involve voters enough and explain to them the value of trade? I think we don't do enough to explain the benefits and the consequences of international trade to national populations. I should say there are some countries which I think go out of their way to try and explain the benefits of trade. And I was well before the pandemic hit. I was in New Zealand, where I think this is a very active policy of the government to go out and engage with and civil society organizations as well to explain, and more importantly, also to listen to what people want. There are, of course, I think a lot of misconceptions and fears out there about how international trade works. There's also, I think, quite a lot of understanding about how it works. I mean, I live in Switzerland here, and I think there's a general understanding amongst the population that Swiss living standards would be a lot lower if we could only rely on and selling to the seven or eight million people who live in this country. Some people get it and they understand it, but not enough to. And so then the question is, okay, how do we begin to talk this through? 
in terms of of figuring out what's going on now or figuring out what's the what's the future i mean you've you've been you know teaching economics and participating in in the world bank's world development report for instance in the 90s and we were focused a lot on free trade and investment getting incentives right just letting you know economic actors move the invisible hand and all these kinds of good things so a lot of water has gone under the bridge and there's a lot of feeling now that maybe those were those were simplistic and it was designed to react to something came before, obviously, 70s and 80s were a very different time than they are now. So would you teach anything differently? Would you, are you teaching anything or are you advising anything differently than, than you would have, let's say, in the, in the late 90s when you're doing this kind of analysis? This is a great question because taking us back to the 90s, it was a period of, in, of incredible clarity, right? We knew what to do, right? And uh, we, we, we had a sense about what the direction that countries and governments should go in. Since then, the, you know, the water has become a lot more muddied. And I think the East Asian financial crisis was a watershed moment because many of the fast growing countries in that region turned their back on the advice from the IMF and the World Bank. At least that's what it felt like to me as a junior official at the time. Then, if I had to say, I had to characterize what's happened, I think we've been groping towards a new consensus, but no one's really, we haven't really found one. And I think maybe the lesson there, and it is the point that Danny Roderick and others make, is to say, actually, stop looking for definitive formulas for recipes for success. Why not recognize the fact that countries have different histories, they're starting off in different places, their economic structures are different, their social conditions are different. So we're going to have to think about what makes sense for a country on a case-by-case basis. Anything else we should we should have asked you, Simon, before we go to the expat part? Any stumpers you would have rather we, we had? At? Maybe what are you focused on? What, what is something that's on, that's been on your mind in the last six to 12 months that you think not enough people are talking about? In the past year, I've been doing a lot of work on the disruption to um, supply chains actually created by public policy. I was very disturbed by the traducing of supply chains by many politicians who tried to cover up their own public health policy mistakes by blaming supply chains for not instantaneously delivering all of the masks we need because they screwed up the lockdown decisions, right? And so one part of what I was doing last year was to try and put together the rec- a factual record of just how dependent we were on, on places like China for different things and, and trying to uh, piece together what we knew about dependencies and vulnerabilities in supply chains. That's been a big area of work. And then this year, of course, as the attention is focused on production of vaccines, I and I, th- I think a, a number of trade policy analysts have really been on a steep learning curve trying to understand the organization of that sector, how vaccines get discovered, how they get manufactured, how they get filled and finished, how they get distributed. And that's been a, a sharp learning curve as well, or rather, I should say, a steep learning curve. And one which has been extremely interesting. And uh, do the politicians come out well in the in the analysis? They've it's on a case by case basis. <laughs> that sounds that sounds right. We, we have seen, unfortunately, most of the big players have had politicians who have said the most moronic things. It's when you get to countries whose living standards really do depend on open trade. Think of countries like Singapore. You think of countries like New Zealand. You think of countries like Switzerland. You get a lot more thoughtful policy responses policymakers there realize that some of these changes which were being talked about last year, if they were to happen, would uh, dramatically transform the prospects of small exporting nations. Boris Johnson, chlorine, ingest it or not. Donald Trump. (laughs) I think it would be an interesting test whether 
the quality of politicians tends to be higher in countries which are smaller and open to international trade. Yeah, exactly, because they can't just put their foot in it. Well, and that's right. Or turn it around. When you have countries which are medium size or large size, you can make a lot of mistakes before living standards start getting seriously hit. I think it's a very interesting question. So you've been an expat in the U.S., as you mentioned. So first of all, sorry about uh, Michigan. It's just, it's not a good, it's not a good place. Ann Arbor is a lovely lady. And now, now you're an expat in Switzerland. So what have you learned about your home country, you know, living as an expat as, as you look back? And is, is there anything you kind of noticed that you... So I, the, this is a great question. And if I can give you just a 30 seconds on history, you'll see where I'm going with this. So I, when I came back from the States, I worked in Bern at the World Trade Institute. And then I took a job in Oxford before I came to St. Garland. When I went back to the UK, the shock was very profound, especially when you had to transition from Swiss railway systems to the UK railway system. You had to go from Swiss apartments, which are very well constructed and looked after, to a recently constructed box, which is what I was living in. So these things were real, real differences. And just mundane issues like going from Oxford to London, that's a one-hour train journey on the book. But because of all the delays, you can you have to factor in a two-hour train journey time just for delays and things. And most of the time you'll get there in an hour, but you you couldn't not plan to have that extra hour just in case something went wrong. Yeah. And so what I really learned was societies which get their act together on things like transportation and alike, information, communication, technologies and alike, they show a huge respect for people's time. And time is one of the most valuable resources. But, you know, I don't want to trash my home country because there's all sorts of great stuff that happens in the UK. And of course, London isn't the most extraordinary city. So uh, there's a lot of strengths, but if only they could get the railways to work. So you spent a bit of time in New Zealand. So obviously we have to ask you an expat-focused question related to there. So on a scale of zero to Sir Peter Jackson, how much did you enjoy growing up in New Zealand? Pretty close to the Sir Peter Jackson ranking. I mean, I, I was there for five years as a kid and uh, really liked it. We lived just on the outskirts of Auckland in the Northern Ireland. A place called Torbay was the, the cove which we lived close to. It was fantastic. And New Zealand is a country where you can go to the beach on Christmas Day. Now tell me, that's that's fantastic. We used to do that. We used to have a wonderful day on the beach and then come home and have our, our traditional English Christmas dinner. And did it worry you to have those big walking trees? There seemed to be some big pitched battles out there, orcs and so on. I think that all takes place in the Southern Island, and we lived in the North. Okay. <laughs> those orcs have names, Rob. <laughs> yeah, they have feelings. <laughs> okay, you, as you said, you're teaching and living in, in St. Gallen, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a huge place. It's in eastern Switzerland. It's, it sounds a little boring and looks a little small, but it was found to have the eighth highest concentration of cocaine in the wastewater in Europe. So any theories? Is it, is it rockinger than it looks? They're, they're all Eric Clapton fans. Let me just answer it for him. <laughs> exactly. It must be. I think Sagalad's a great place to live. I'm in my early 50s. And my need would be different if I were in my early 20s. So I, I, I can understand people. They might look at this differently. But I'm looking for a piece of middle class heaven. And this is it. That's what I'd say. As for the, as for the cocaine in the water, I, clearly someone's having a good time. I, I'm not going to endorse that type of behavior. But, you know, <laughs> what goes on behind people's closed doors is up to them. St. Colin MBA students, we don't know. Okay, we, you're, you're an analyst and a, and a, and a data guy. And this podcast is all about that. So we are taking a poll here. One of the rites of passage for expats in Switzerland is having their bike stolen, especially Geneva. So have you had a bike stolen in Geneva, in St. Gallen or anywhere? I've never owned a bike in Switzerland. 
So I have to pass on that question. Okay. Anything cool stolen? Yeah. I had a very, very nice leather a briefcase stolen in Geneva railway station as I was going to Lausanne. I turned my back and uh, the next thing I knew it had gone. So I went to report it to the police the next day. And then within a few weeks, I was telephoned and told that my briefcase had been found, et cetera, et cetera. Please come and collect it. Really? And okay, that's, I think that's the first story we've had where somebody got something back. I, I don't believe you, Simon. <laughs> Show me the police report. <laughs> no, it, it was it was it was very funny because I I was going off to IMD for an event and I had to tell people why I didn't have my notes with me and then there was all sorts of jokes about how the briefcase had been deliberately stolen by someone who was trying to get their hands on my trade policy insights and so yeah I took a bit of a beating for that so I do remember this this certainly happened and was your speech better or worse. Oh, probably better. Yeah, exactly. And so we don't we, we don't remember it as the speech having gone down in flames. No, but I do remember having to you know, get up very early the next morning to file the report, then come back and then collect it later. But no, the the Geneva police were very efficient. All right, that's we don't hear that sentence uh, all the time, but that's good. You don't see police in Geneva. If you try to bring spring rolls across the border without a permission, you will see them. Speaking of spring rolls, another famous dish that we have here in in Geneva, and I think. There's probably one in the eastern part of, of Switzerland as well as kebab. So I know there's an Alpen kebab, which is famous in, in Up and So. Whenever we go visit, it's always somewhere we have to go. So do you have a favorite kebab in Geneva or globally in Switzerland? And if so, is it Alamir? Such a leading question. I've never eaten kebab in Geneva. So I clearly am missing out on something and should take recommendations from you guys. As for Tengalen, yeah, we have some kebab places. There's actually two that I go to. I think if I went public on which one I prefer, I would seriously reduce my chances at the other place. So uh, we do we have we do have two, and uh, and they do a great job. Very diplomatic, excellent. I have to be smuggled past Parfum de Beirut actually since this podcast started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it has become an issue. That's, there's no doubt about it. So uh, the last two questions will be sort of lightning round. You you would know that Switzerland is a land of duopolies. Everybody has their preference for either co-op or migro. So what we'd like to ask is, which is yours, co-op or migro? Migro. Rob will not be happy with that. That's, uh, you need to support that answer. I don't I don't think we just accept that. So that answer is supported by the quality of the vegetables and fresh fruit, uh, which we have at the main migro. And also, I think actually a lot of the processed food that you can buy, for example, pizzas, you can buy much better pizzas at migro. I uh, <clears throat> think this question is going to get cut. Fair enough. That's not anecdotal. He substantiated with actual reasons. Usually people are just like Migro because the color. Or because it's closer. Yeah. That, that's, I think. Actually, Migro for me is not closer. I have to go out of my way to go to Migro. This is worrying. This is the kind of thing we need to know before we interview somebody. Loyal customer is what that is. Okay, next question. Sprungli or Ladurac or Cadbury? Let me throw you another curveball. Ladurac, definitely. Ridley Scott or Peter Jackson? It's like Sophie's choice for you. Ridley Scott by a mile. Excellent. I knew he was a good guy to interview, Rob. I knew it was a good idea. This thing is going south fast. (laughs) You'll never be allowed back into New Zealand. And it's Sir Peter Jackson. Yeah, exactly. If you're listening, you uh, you could sponsor this segment. Vigo Mortensen, please come on. (laughs) Well, there you have it. I think he just about answered all of our questions in his professional and time-efficient a manner as you would expect from somebody living in Switzerland. Exactly. If you need something done quickly and efficiently, ask a busy man, they say. So, Simon, where can people learn more about your work? Where should they go to, to find it? So a lot of my work is on the Global Trade Alert website which is called globaltradealert.org. And you can see our data collection, but also all the thought leadership is on the reports section. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Simon Evident, for joining us. We, I, I mean, I learned a lot as always. I think it's really interesting also this 
this idea of the, the intersection between business and policy and the impact that these decisions have. So thanks a lot for joining us and look forward to reading more about your work in the future. Thanks. It was great fun. And sharing a kebab in Geneva next time you're there. Yeah, I do want recommendations on that, guys. You've got to send me some. D- don't worry, Artie. I'll take care of that one. This brings us to This Week in Local News, or I guess it's pretty much anywhere news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or anywhere else. That's because all news is local. So we're we're going to start with something called Communism is Back. Can you help me here? Uh, yes, according to noted political commentator Grimes, the uh, significant other of Elon Musk on TikTok, she says we can now reach all those things we love about communism without the collective farm, yeah. all through AI. And funnily enough, all of the companies that Elon Musk owns. Could help us with that. Yeah. So what are the things we love about communism? You only get one car. Well, you get two cars. You get one car that you drive and another car for spare parts because the first car is so bad. And it's less stressful-ish. <laughs> is it less stressful? Yeah, I don't know. There's less propensity for accidents like nuclear meltdown. And is Grimes a good political commentator? Yeah, I think she knows a few things about this. She's speaking from personal experience. She does come from a very affluent neighborhood in Canada, and she became a pop star. And I guess she's a pop star. I've, I've heard. I, don't, I tried listening to the music after Michelle sent the TikTok. But. So, Michelle, do you think this is, is this the way forward? Can we have all the good things about communism? Well, I think I trust Grimes with my life, but she does say that there's one thing that you can't do with communism, which is going to Mars. Do you know why? Why is that? Why is that? Tell us. (laughs) Because Mars hasn't been rendered in the simulation that we live in. Grimes just saw the Matrix, basically, and realized that we live in a simulation and rendering Mars would be too much as opposed to rendering the Earth, which is fine, apparently. That's for the next set of chips that Apple comes out with. There's not enough computing power. Exactly. You need more computing power and maybe more communism. Unclear. Yeah, because, I mean, I grew up thinking communism, like there wasn't a lot of things I loved about communism. Apart from the gulags. Yeah. So, Michelle, your generation, communism, bad, good, middle? Oh, 100%. Eat the rich. Yeah. Eat them. Eat, eat the rich. <laughs> eat them. Soak them. Eat them. I mean, half the answers to her TikTok was like, no, no, no. I have a proposition for you. Eat your husband. Who's rich? <laughs> but he's one of the good ones. Is he? Uh, the SEC is actually calling him right now because in the back of those videos, he was screaming out, what about the price of Bitcoin? Well, since we were talking about collective farms related to communism, I wanted to give you an update on the coverage of cow farts. You remember with Doha, we were talking about cow- I do remember. I was there cow manufactured methane and we might have said it came out the back door but actually apparently 95 percent of it comes out the front door get out the front door <laughs> i'm telling you and this contributes to 10 percent of global warming gases so apparently there's now a solution there's something called a there's a there's a mask by a, a startup called zelp which goes over the nasal passages it's a typo they meant yelp <laughs> it goes over the nasal passages collects the methane and converts it to a to co2 which is a much less powerful greenhouse gas drinking water <laughs> so uh, so that that's all good it sounds great i mean we can't we can't kind of argue with that however at 80 bucks a pop it's a one hell of an accessory for a cow and could raise the price of such things as milk and meat. So I ask you, would you pay more for that? As I just said, it's a fair price to pay. You would pay. Because I saw the question. Now, you you may be wondering, are cows okay with this? So you might ask me, are cows okay with this? Maybe we should <laughs> ask them is what I would say. Can we ask them? Well, we haven't seen it. The pilot phase masks are not great looking, although I think it would be a good visual to have a feel to these guys. So how do they know that they're, they're okay? Well, the Argentine British cows were told adapted quickly. Argentine and British cows. This is like a Seen out of Animal Farm. Apparently. Set, set in the Falklands. <laughs> two, two, two legs good, four legs bad. 
So I think we will keep watching the police blotter here in Geneva. And we'll keep, obviously, our, our eyes on communism. Ish. <laughs> Brought to you by Grimes. <laughs> Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode brought to you by the number 21 and the rare earth miners of Ukraine, China, and Russia. Workers of the world, unite. We'd like to thank our guests, Simon Evident, for talking to us about trade policy reform, business education, and of course, orcs. Yeah, that uh, took a left turn. But anyway, we want to thank Michelle for helping to produce this podcast episode. And also, it's important for us to remind our listeners that Tradesplaining will be on a holiday break for a few weeks. And we hope to resume our regularly scheduled broadcasts in uh, mid to late July. So stay tuned for more. In the meantime, you can check out some of our previous episodes or our greatest hits, as we like to call them. As always, please don't forget to make sure you download this episode if you haven't already subscribed. And also feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Also, feel free to email us your questions, comments, and thoughts on kebabs to Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly.